Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all this morning. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the leaders here. It is great to be with you. If you're new to River's Edge, we're glad that you're joining us. We are currently in the middle of a series on the parables of Jesus from the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, and we'll get started. If you've been with us for the last three weeks, you know that we spent it in Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus was addressing the crowds about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, in what we would call the parables discourse. He spoke extensively to the crowds in parables that repelled some and drew others deeper in. Well, starting this week, we are shifting beyond the parables discourse, and from here forward, we'll be covering most, if not all, of the parables recorded in the book of Matthew. By the time we get to chapter 18, the disciples have seen Jesus move in power. They understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah on whom the presence of God rests, and they know that the Messiah was to restore the kingdom of God on earth. The problem is that there were all sorts of misconceptions about how and when the kingdom would come and what the nature of the kingdom of heaven would look like. And so many of Jesus' parables were designed to illustrate aspects of the kingdom that would otherwise be difficult to grasp. And today's parable is no different. Although today Jesus is going to hit on one aspect of the kingdom that was particularly difficult for the disciples to grasp. We pick up in chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the beauty of your words that have been um, passed on to us thousands of years later. We still have these words and they're just as timely for us today because they speak of something that is timeless. In, in the nature of your kingdom. And so, God, would you open our eyes to what it is that you want to teach us this morning? Would you continue to shape us as individuals and as a community? We come to you open-minded, we come to you open-hearted and open-handed and ask that your will would be done and that you would shape us and change us to be more like you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As the disciples become increasingly convinced of Jesus' messiahship and increasingly hopeful that Jesus will build the kingdom of God on earth, 
questions start to naturally arise in their minds. After all, they are the chosen ones. And just as God had chosen 12 tribes of Israel, so too Jesus has chosen 12 disciples, a relaunching of the people of God on earth and reestablishing of Israel. And so they had this imagery of the 12 of them sitting on 12 thrones and judging Israel, or really ruling and leading alongside Jesus. And in fact, they would have had the words of Jesus himself painting their imaginations. Among those born of women, Jesus says, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And and so you have John the Baptist who was sort of the last prophet in the tradition and line of Old Testament prophets. And Jesus says, he is the greatest human being ever born, and yet even the least of those in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than him. Okay, well that's got to get you thinking. I mean, whoa, there's, there's, there's a hierarchy here. And, and where do we fall? I, I mean, we've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. Successful family businesses, promising careers, social connections, comfort and security, all of it to follow this radical rabbi from Nazareth. So naturally, very human questions start to creep up in their minds. What will the new order look like? If we are working toward the glory of the kingdom of heaven, how do we go about attaining the greatest glory? Who will be the most honored in that place? Who will be the greatest? And as you read the gospel accounts, they are constantly asking these questions among themselves, each convinced that they will be the greatest, the most honored, and excel above the rest. And when the question is brought before Jesus, either uh, by direct question or by Jesus calling it out among them, his response is a curious one. He brings a little child to them, And he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, okay, now we're just talking about entering, be like this. In fact, he says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And instantly, all sorts of questions arise. Because there's a lot that we could say about children, is there not? And the question that people have wrestled with over the centuries is just what aspect of childlikeness are we meant to attain? Which qualities are we supposed to emulate? And so people are constantly speculating. Is it their innocence? Is it their lack of pride? Is it their unassuming attitude or their malleability? Or is it the simplicity of their faith? 
Moses, our oldest, is two years old. And he already seems to have a beautiful concept of who God is. And he seems to relate to Jesus in a simple, elemental, uncomplicated way. And he actually likes to pray and and read his Bible. And if you ask him, Moses, where is Jesus? He just puts his hand on his heart. And and he can't say it, but but he's saying right here. And and, and he believes that. It's it's beautiful. There is a, a sweetness and an innocence about him that's worth emulating. But this same child will have a meltdown if you deny him a cookie. And he doesn't think twice about passing gas at loud volumes in very public places. And occasionally, he attempts to strip down to his diaper in the middle of the grocery store. So if I were to commit myself to being childlike in every way, I would end up somewhere on the spectrum of unpopular to incarcerated. And and so clearly, Jesus wants us to be childlike in some ways, but not in all ways. And, And the ways in which he does want us to emulate children may not be immediately obvious. Because it's true that children are unassuming and that they're often unbiased and that they are unhindered in their interactions. But most centrally, for Jesus' purposes, they are unimportant. What we have to understand is that ancient Israel was a lot different than present-day America. And one of the differences is that children were not highly valued in society. They knew that children were a gift from God, one that was vital for the future survival and health and honor of the family. But if they were a gift from God, they were a gift waiting to mature. Their value was largely a future anticipated value and not a present value. They could not actively contribute to the family, and so they were, in essence, just another mouth to feed. And we have to grasp that because we live in a different time and place and culture where some children, um, sadly, are abused and neglected. But many children in our culture are practically worshipped within the home. Family revolves around the children, and they take priority over all other arenas of life, even being prioritized over the marriage and the overall health of the parents. And of course, there are uh, issues of entitlement and self-centeredness that result from that. And and perhaps we're going to have to deal with these issues on on a generational uh, basis. But when we read Jesus' words 
through a cultural lens where children are made central, we just end up thinking that Jesus is putting in a good word for the kids and and simply reinforcing what we already believe. And so we read a passage like this to say, kids are awesome, be like children. But the primary point that Jesus is making is that in a culture where children are marginalized and thought of as more or less worthless, they clothe themselves in a humility which is rooted in their desperate dependence on others. And in doing so, He's making a stunning and counterintuitive statement about power and greatness in the kingdom of God. What is the height of power and control in humanity's eyes? In humanity's eyes, it is utter and complete independence. I don't need anything or anyone. And in fact, I am higher, more important, more worthy of honor than those around me. That version of power drives the world to be what it is. The kingdom of the world is built on that assumption. Power and domination rise above, out-compete, overpower and push others down along the way. And, and, and the parables of Jesus are so offensive to his listeners precisely because they expected the kingdom of God to operate in the same way. It, it's just centered around God instead of money or, or whatever else. But all the same principles should apply. And, and so the disciples are talking amongst themselves and they're saying, I am the greatest. I, I, I'm better than you. I will rise above you. You will be my inferior. I will be your superior. I will be more important, more highly decorated, a higher throne, a shinier crown, more subjects, more wealth, more trophies, shinier sports cars, more Boy Scout badges, and more retweets. I, I, I am a super disciple, and you're a nobody. What? No, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I, I, I'll be higher than you. No, you won't. It, it, that's it. it Jesus? J Jesus, Jesus, would you come over here, please? Help me out. Would you put John in his place for me? Would you tell Peter to, to stop yapping his trap? These, these guys are talking nonsense. Tell them, Jesus, tell them who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Jesus says. Does anyone have a three-year-old that I can borrow? Ah, yes, okay, all right, here's one. Come over here. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Be like this. 
And, and the disciples are stunned. That, that's not powerful. That's not... Wait, what? What, what are you saying? And, and, and what Jesus is introducing is a whole new paradigm for power. And for the most part, the disciples don't get it. Jesus is confronting and overturning the universal human paradigm about power and greatness. The world is going to operate on a certain frequency. And it has from the very beginning. From the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel, humans have lifted up self-sufficiency as the ultimate aim and goal. You know which lie hit the hardest in the Garden of Eden? Here, take and eat this and you will be like God. You don't need to be like little children relying on him and sitting in naivety. Get up and claim this for yourself. You won't need him. You won't need anyone. And, and, and so they take and, and they eat. And in comes sin and death and decay and futile thinking and darkness, which is rooted in independence from God. And then humanity spreads out and it grows and you get the first legitimate human city. And you know what it's built on? The quest for self-sufficiency. They build a tower in the middle of the city that they legitimately believe will reach to the heavens or the space where God is. Um, they actually believed in kind of the ancient worldview that the sky was sort of a solid dome and quite low uh, to the earth. And so uh, they built this tower as a way of marveling in their own strength and glory with the, the new technology of the day, the brick that had been invented. And, and so they're marveling in their own strength and glory and building this tower as if to say, we can make it to the heavens on our own. We don't need you at all. In fact, we don't need to rely on anyone but ourselves. We have the technology, we have the strength, we have the power, we don't need God. Come, they say, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Forget about God. You know what the Tower of Babel was? It was a giant physical and theological middle finger. We don't need you. We can make it to the heavens on our own. We have everything we need. Complete self-reliance. And so God breaks up their empire and scatters them across the face of the earth to, to humble them. But humanity has been clinging to this mindset ever since. And then Jesus comes along 
And he says, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to change and become like little children. The world functions in one way. The kingdom of heaven is the exact opposite. It's completely inverted, subversive, and counterintuitive. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child, Jesus says, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Oh yeah, and in the midst of all of this, you should be desperately dependent on God for grace and spiritual sustenance in the same way that a small child is desperately dependent on their parents for food. I, I, I mean, a, a child, a, a slave, genuine humility, desperate dependence, that's not the heart posture that you and I naturally want to have. That's not the place that you want to be. But that's the place that God wants you to be. And that's the heart posture that God wants you to have. Why? Because entrance into the kingdom of heaven isn't based on you. It's, it's not up to you. It, it's not about you. You cannot build a tower to get there. But rather, God in His mercy came down from heaven to be here with you. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus is saying, yeah, be that way with God and one another. Why? Because only in that humility and God reliance will you actually be able to receive what it is that God wants to give you. You know why the gospel is the best news on earth? Because it's not up to you. It's up to God and His grace. You know why the gospel is the most difficult news to receive? Because if it's true, it means it's not up to you. And you're not in control. There is an entire segment of humanity who wants legalism to be true who wants rules over relationship, who wants to earn their way to heaven through moral effort. And, and so what I want to do this morning, rather than um, critiquing different world religions that have embraced this mindset, I, I'd, I'd rather like to call our attention to, to post-modern, post-Christian America. How many times have you interacted with people and your heart is to share the gospel and the love of Jesus and they sidestep the entire conversation by saying something like this. 
I don't know if there is a God, but if there is, I'm going to heaven because I have been a good person. Have you heard that before? If you haven't, you will, and increasingly so. And, and I want to call this out for what it is. This is the Tower of Babel all over again. Do, do you see it? it, it it's hidden. It, it's masked under, under a facade of polite naivety. But the mentality hasn't changed. We're, we're still building towers. Not physical towers, because our understanding of the physical universe has changed. But we're still building them. We're just building them morally. I have the moral sufficiency to climb my way up to heaven. It, it, it's about my name, not God's. It's about my morality, not His. It's about the quality of my heart and my actions, not his heart and actions. Come, let's make a name for ourselves. My reputation as a good person will allow me to climb the moral ladder up into heaven. And in the midst of it, we're still giving God the middle finger. We don't need God. Not in our postmodern world. We, we can get to heaven on our own. We don't need Jesus. We, we don't need the cross. We would rather have morality that we can control than a relationship with God that requires trust. Because to stand before the throne of God with no justification outside of the blood of Jesus requires stunning self-abandonment and absolute childlike trust. And, and it's a trust rooted in relationship. But within that relationship, God is in control, not you. You have to be as reliant on Him as a helpless, worthless child is on their parents to feed them and clothe them and give them what they need. And when you come to that place of absolute reliance, of total self-abandonment, of self-forgetfulness, rooted in the humility of Christ, then you are in the perfect place to receive the kingdom of God. And as you do, you become what Jesus refers to as a little one. Because God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And the little ones here that humble themselves in absolute reliance on God will be ushered in. And those who make much of themselves, looking to elevate, uh, to dominate, and even to degrade and discredit others in the process, as they jockey for position and honor, well, they are at risk of losing the kingdom altogether. And if they make it in it all, 
they will be the least. And so Jesus continues to teach his disciples. But from this point forward, he's referring to a true disciple as a quote-unquote little one. This is verse 4 that we already read. Listen to this. He says, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child or humble disciple in my name welcomes me. Then he continues, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, my true disciples who humble themselves in God-reliance, if anyone causes one of them to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Does Jesus care about children? Oh yeah. Will there be judgment for those who harm children and who are not absolutely and fully repentant before God and others? Absolutely. But the primary point that Jesus is after isn't children. It's actually disciples who have taken on the heart posture of children. And so Jesus gives a a sobering warning about those in the world or even in the church who live in such a way that it actually drags people away from God, away from Christ, diminishing their faith. Don't derail them, Jesus says. And then he goes on, verse 10, and see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Because when the people operating in the world's version of power come across those who have a gentle humility rooted in dependence on God, their impulse will be to dominate, subjugate, and destroy. Because that's how things work in their world. The world will view the little ones as unpowerful and unimportant. But, Jesus goes on, I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Which is Jesus' way of saying, you think they're worthless, and I'm telling you they have unsurpassing value in my Father's eyes. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep that wandered off and was found than the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. And and, and that's the end of our text for today. But where does that leave us? 
what is Jesus trying to tell us about children and power and sheep and millstones? How do we distill the words of Jesus into something that we can grasp and engage with in a coherent way? Well, we'll end with this. These are three major takeaways from today's text for those of you who are taking notes. First, Jesus tells us that God's heart and warning is that you should take sin seriously and avoid living a lifestyle that drags those around you into sin. Do not cause one of these little ones to stumble especially those who are younger in the faith or those who uh, look up to you in one way or another. To lead them away from God is actually to incur the judgment of God because God, this is why, because God has a ferocious love for the people that you are treating as worthless. You say, oh, those people don't matter. Their faith doesn't matter. They're just lukewarm disciples to begin with. And Jesus is saying, their angels see the face of God himself. They are incredibly important. So in humility, consider your effect on their faith. In other words, who are the people in your sphere of influence And how are you influencing them? Do you cause them to stumble or or do you point them toward Jesus in a compelling way? That's number one. Number two, if you're taking notes, Jesus tells us uh, God's heart is to seek and restore those who have wandered. And he invites you to partner with him in that task. I'm going after the one, Jesus says, because my heart is that none of them should be lost. Who's with me? Because it's not easy work, but as we align our heart and actions with God's heart and actions, we come to life in our faith. And God is here with the flock, so to speak, with the 99 who are actively engaged with him, but he's also out there with the disciple who's wandered and gotten lost. And God says, meet me out there. Let's go after the one together. That's where my heart is. And finally, as we close, Jesus says, in all that you do, in your waking and your sleeping, in your pursuit of God and in your pursuit of the lost, put on childlike humility. Embrace that same attitude. And and can I just say, as we close, that, that we get all mixed up when it comes to humility. The world tells us to be confident and think highly of ourselves. Human nature prompts us to elevate ourselves even at the expense of others. And then Jesus comes along and he tells us to be humble and take a lowly position. 
And so what we do more often than not when we hear that is that we automatically swing the other way and we begin degrading ourselves, tearing ourselves down in order to keep from being big-headed. And so most of us, this is humanity, I think most of us either walk around thinking, I'm awesome, I'm perfect, I don't need God, I don't need anyone. Or we walk around thinking the opposite. I'm an idiot, I'll never be good enough for God, I'm just a sinner, I'm worthless, I'm useless. Stay humble, stay humble, don't be confident. The problem is that neither of those mentalities accurately capture godly humility. Godly humility lies somewhere in between. And we'll end with this. This is Paul's words to the Corinthians. He says, If you were a slave when the world called you, you are now free in the Lord. In in other words, if you view yourselves as worthless, let me remind you who you really are. And if any of you have confused humility for self-deprivation, let me confront you with the truth. The world might call you a slave. The world might treat you like a slave and look down on you, but that's not who you really are. You are a child of the living God, completely restored, completely forgiven, completely free. Don't hang your head like you're not worth anything. Don't accept wholesale the things that the world tells you, because God has placed unsurpassing value on you, and you have stunning access to your Father in heaven. God would leave the 99 just to seek after you and restore you. Take heart. Be be filled with a confident faith. You are a new creation. A slave? You're not a slave. Paul continues. Next sentence. He says, And if you were free when the Lord called you. So if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, if you were a person of privilege and position, then remember that you are now a slave of Christ. In, In the most beautiful way you can imagine. But here's his point. There is no room for pride here. There is no room for self-elevation. Only humility. Don't forget for a second, Paul says, that you stand childlike before God in desperate dependence on His grace and the forgiveness of the cross as a child depends on their parents for food. And then... Once you've realized that, now go and act in the humility that flows from that heart posture. Because that's where kingdom greatness starts. You want to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says? Be like that. 
You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Be a slave and a servant to everyone else. You see the way the world operates. You were born at the foot of the Tower of Babel. You were baptized into that world and its ways. You were hardwired to operate in that kingdom of self-elevation. But now there is a new kingdom coming, and it's not like the old one. It's upside down, and it's counterintuitive, and it's better. And you're invited. Because at the end of the age, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who line up at the gates of the kingdom, full of self-entitlements. I deserve this. I'm in for sure. I've earned this. I built my moral tower with or without God. I earned my way here. And they're going to be turned away. Because they have fundamentally misunderstood the mechanism by which one enters the kingdom. And there's going to be a whole bunch of other people who aren't even aware of their own greatness, who kneel at the gates of the kingdom and say, Jesus, this is about your righteousness, not mine. And with childlike humility and utter dependence on the grace of God, they will be ushered into the kingdom of their father as humble and expectant children, and their joy will be complete. You want to enter the kingdom? Be like that. Let's pray.